Acts chapter number two. It is good to be back in the church this morning. Uh, we're continuing our series, Come Alive, the Empowering of the Church. So excited about this message and really just excited about this series in general. Been wanting to preach out of the book of Acts for some time and just kind of waiting on the Lord's leading in the Holy Spirit's guidance and direction in our life. So if you don't mind, go ahead and stand if you would. Uh, we're going to read the first 11 verses this morning, Acts chapter number two, starting in verses one all the way down through verse number 11. This is uh, the events that happened at Pentecost is everything in chapter number two. So a lot of exciting events take place. A lot of exciting events happen. So Acts chapter two, starting in verse number one, the Bible says, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. These were the 120 that were there gathered together, the disciples, the followers of Jesus. Again, after Jesus ascended up into heaven, verse number two, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven. This would just be an amazing thing to witness. A sound from heaven as of a mighty or as of rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now, when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded. They were just perplexed because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Uh, I'm going to skip the next verse because I'm going to mess up all these uh, places where they're at. So the next two verses, that's basically everyone under heaven had come. Let's skip down to verse number 11. Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this morning that you've given us to come and worship you. Thank you for the great music we've heard thus far. And God, I, I do, again, pray that you would be with those that have been affected by this virus and really maybe just any sickness that they're going through and struggle right now. Lord, I know there is a, a lot of fear in our country right now, in our world, but God, I pray that you would help us as Christians to rely on you, to realize that you have not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, of love, of a sound mind. So God, I pray that you'd help us to have a mind that is fastened and focused on you and on what you would have us to do. And Lord, I pray that you'd be with us this morning as we look at this message ignited by the spirit. I pray that you'd help us to realize the importance <clears throat> of the Holy Spirit's working in our lives. Lord, I've done different studies from time to time on the Holy Spirit, and I can never fully exhaust all that the Holy Spirit can do in and through the life of a believer. Lord, I pray that you'd help us this morning. I pray that you'd give me the wisdom, the discernment to know what to do and what to say and how to preach this morning. We love you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. How many like math? Anybody like math? All right, we got one, two, three honest people. Very good. I got, a, I got a very tough question for you this morning. What is the opposite of multiplication? Division. Good job. Even with core math, you guys still got that. Awesome. The opposite of multiplication is division. Uh, what's the opposite of addition? Just to make sure you guys are you know, where you need to be. All right. Very good. So the opposite of multiplication is division. Now, I say that for a reason. I want you to listen to this quote that I read this week, and I think we have the slide. We can throw it up there. And we can also throw it up online as well. Unity, we've been talking about unity. 
Unity always leads to multiplication. Division always leads to death. Leave it up here for just a second. I want you to think about that because as we continue this message this morning and really the next several weeks, we're going to continue to hit on this thought that the reason this church at at Jerusalem, when they were started, when they were empowered there uh, with the Holy Spirit coming, the reason I believe great things were able to be accomplished was because they were truly unified. And again, I've hit on the idea of unity many times before, but just understand that unity always leads to multiplication. When a church is truly unified together, the church will multiply, will grow. But when a church is divisive, it's always going to lead to death. I've seen that firsthand, and there's a good chance you've probably seen it firsthand as well. Then let me ask you this question. Which path as a church would you rather be on? The path of multiplication or the path of division? Multiplication. I think I may have heard one person say division, but if you did, I'm sorry you misunderstood the question. Uh, (laughs) uh, I think all of us understand that we'd rather be on the path of multiplication. So we have to understand that if we want to multiply, if we want to grow the way that God wants us to grow, then we must be unified together. We must be one body of believers with one mission, one purpose, one goal in mind. And as we've already hit on, the mission that God gave for his church really was was given right before he left, that great commission to, to go, to spread the gospel, to make disciples of all people. Now listen, unity is that overarching theme that we see within this early church. They were a group of believers that were all together. And the thing that united them above anything and everything really was was prayer. They were united together in prayer. They were not focused on the petty. And I'm not going to spend too much time on this because that's not really the message this morning, but it's very important to understand. They had a commonality in mind. They were focused on the things that were truly important. And we cannot be together as a church if we're apart on our mission as a church. Unity is what binds us together, and prayer is what drives us closer. As I've already mentioned, Acts chapter 1-8 is really the theme verse for this whole book, where it says, But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and into the uttermost part of the earth. This is the power, the purpose, the plan, all wrapped up into one right here in this verse. Oh, your alarm's going off. Somebody's alarm's going off. (laughs) But the empowering of the church had to do, listen, with the beginning of a movement. The early church was a movement that was gathered around a mission. The mission came first. The mission was to go and multiply. The mission was to go and make disciples. God doesn't have a mission for his church. He made a church for his mission. Now listen to this. This is important. Which means that a church that is not on mission is not really a church. Let me say that again. God has a mission for his church. He has a plan and a purpose for his church to go, to spread the gospel to unreached areas of the world, both near and far, to make disciples, us making disciples of other believers. And if we are not fulfilling that mission, then really we're not a local church the way that God 
intended. And believers, listen, who are not on mission are not really part of a church. So if you are a believer, if you call yourself a Christian, but you are not on mission with the church, then you're not even really part of the church. You're part of your own separate entity. And if you're part of your own separate entity, there's no unity. There's no unity with the believers. And the reason I love this passage in this book, especially the first several chapters so much, is because it gives us our, as some people say, our marching orders for what we're supposed to do, for how we're supposed to live, for how we're supposed to act. And if we want the church to go forward in the 21st century, what we have to do is get back to the first century model. The first century mandate that was given by Jesus Christ. I like what Vance Havner used to say. He said, we are not going to move the world by criticism of it, nor conformity to it. Let me say that again. We are not going to move this world, change this world by criticism of it. Now, it's very easy to criticize this world, right? Very easy. Just look around and you can criticize things in this world. Watch the news, the media, you can criticize things in this world. But that is not how the world is going to change, by over-criticizing it or by conforming to it. And some people are like, yeah, you know what? It's no use just fighting it. Let's just join in. Let's just be who they are, to do what they want us to do. And many churches have done that, haven't they? They have conformed to the standards of the world. And that's not how you really truly go a church grow a church. But Havner continues, we're not going to move a world by criticism of it nor conformity to it. And he continues by saying this, but by the combustion within it of lives ignited by the Spirit of God. And that's what I want to preach on this morning. Ignited by the Spirit. Acts chapter 2 marks a turning point in the history of God's global purpose at work through the church. In chapter 1, the disciples, remember, were called to wait. What were they supposed to wait for? Anybody remember? Somebody said it. The Holy Spirit, yes. They were to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. That was the promise of the Father. The Holy Spirit was coming. Now, the Holy Spirit, remember, could not come until what happened? What happened that led to the Holy Spirit coming? Anybody remember that? Jesus left. Jesus ascended because if Jesus stayed... There's no need for the Holy Spirit, but since Jesus left, since he ascended up into heaven, he sent with him the Holy Spirit to come and comfort. So in chapter one, the disciples were waiting. In chapter one, they were held back. In chapter two, they were sent forth. We're having a lot of talking today, and it's not by people, it's by machines. Anyway, oh, this is awesome. <laughs> But anyway, that same Holy Spirit power, listen, is available to all of us today to make us a more effective witness for Jesus Christ. And to better understand that, we have to understand what happened on that day. And the first thing I want to just briefly mention in verse number one of chapter two, and when the day of Pentecost, many of us probably in here have heard of Pentecost, right? We've heard of what the day of Pentecost is. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now, I'm going to try to get some interaction today. We're a little bit down, but the more you interact, the better it's going to be, I promise you. So who were the they that were in one accord? Who, who were the they that is talking about here? In Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Who's the they? 
The apostles, the disciples, everyone. My goodness. Do I need to go back to chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 28? All right, go back to Genesis chapter 1, guys. Let's just start at the very beginning. We'll be here all day. All right, just kidding. Wake up, wake up, here we go. Come on, the more interaction, the better it's going to be. Uh, the, the disciples, the apostles, all of the followers of Jesus are they that are in one accord in unity gathered together. They're here on the day of Pentecost. What is Pentecost? Pentecost means 50th, very important. Comes from that uh, word 50, or penta, which means 50. But Pentecost was a feast. It was the feast of harvest. It was a Jewish holiday. And this harvest feast was a feast of the first fruits that symbolized the first fruits of a believer's inheritance. And this was the first major holiday that happened after Passover. Passover was when they celebrated the Passover lamb that passed over uh, the Israelites when they were enslaved in Egypt, when the had the blood sprinkled across the doorpost of their house. And 50 days later, which is seven weeks plus one day, they celebrated the Feast of the Harvest or the Feast of Pentecost. And specifically on this feast was when the Holy Spirit was going to come in and empower and fill his church. Now, just a little FYI before we really dive into this this morning. We do not need another repeat of Pentecost. Stay with me here. People today claim that what the world needs, what the church needs, is another Pentecost. The reality of that statement would be like saying, we need another Bethlehem, or we need another Calvary. But do we need another Bethlehem? No. Jesus already came. Do we need another Calvary? No. Jesus already died. Do we need another Pentecost? No. The Holy Spirit has already come. Now, there are certain events that happened that day that it would be nice to replicate, but Bethlehem was God with us. Calvary was God for us, and Pentecost is God in us. You see, the Holy Spirit ignited the church this day. They went from ordinary people doing ordinary things to becoming extraordinary people, all through the power of the Spirit. What happens is that they came alive couple quick things that we'll make mention of. We'll make an application this morning. First thing is this. The Holy Spirit came. That's important. Verses two and three. The Holy Spirit came. Now remember, when we study our Bible, we have to understand that there are times, I think of especially of Revelation, there are times when the author is writing in a first century mindset, trying to describe something. You ever been there? You ever tried to describe something and you're like, yeah, it's like, it's like this, and it's like that, and people are like, I have no clue what you're talking about. You ever done that? You ever been there? Yeah. So we have to understand that sometimes when studying our Bible, there are similes, comparisons. You know, it's, it's like this. So that's what Luke is trying to do for us when he sets the stage of uh, t- talking about the Holy Spirit come. Verse number two, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of, or like as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire. So again, he's making similes <clears throat> excuse me, and comparisons of, of what he was trying to describe it for uh, those that were reading his letter and those that would be reading it later on down the, down the road. But they're gathered together and all of a sudden they heard this sound of a violent rushing wind. What, what an amazing thing that would have been. I mean, just imagine it. We're gathered here together, and all of a sudden, there's this, there's this sound of a mighty rushing wind. I mean, that would probably freak some of you guys out, right? I mean, 
Honestly, it'd probably freak me out a little bit too. A giant sound of a mighty rushing wind. You're like, what in, just, what in the world just happened? I mean, is, is, a, is a, a train, a semi about to bulldoze into us? Is it a hurricane in, in, in the midst? What is going on? And then those present also saw what looked like cloven tongues of fire on top of people's heads. Now, I, I'm pretty confident this didn't happen, but my imagination, you know, runs amok a lot of times, as you know, when I'm studying. And I can just imagine, again, this is not biblical. This is not from the Greek or Hebrew. Um, but I can just imagine, you know, all of a sudden, you know, the, the sound comes in, fills the room, uh, looks like fires on people's heads. And I can just see, you know, one of the disciples like, dude, there's fire on your head. <laughs> and they're like, get it off, get it off. Again, that's my interpretation of it. It's not biblical at all. <laughs> and then they're like beating each other. That's probably not what happened at all. So let me just get back to the message because I'm getting way offhand. But the sound and the sight are both symbols of the Holy Spirit. Both are symbolic. But I especially want to point to the symbolism of the fire. You see, when you study the Old Testament, and really all of the Bible points back to itself, when you study the Old Testament, it's pretty cool. You often see fire as God's special presence showing up. Think about this, a couple little things. God appeared to Moses where or how? How did God appear to Moses? Anybody remember? In a burning bush. God also led the people through the wilderness by a pillar of what? Fire. When God came down to give them the law, it was in a fire. When he came to dwell in the temple, it was, anybody know? It was in a fire. There's a continuous thought here going on. But the fire was terrifying and often fatal. You couldn't touch it or even look at it. And now it is on the head of every believer that is gathered there that is present. Now, this is pretty cool. Every believer, in a sense, is their own burning bush. With the presence of God inside of them, and instead of dying from fire, typically if you're inside of a fire, you're going to die, right? You're going to get burnt. But instead of dying from the fire, what's happening? They are coming alive. I don't know if you get excited about that kind of stuff, but I do. It, it excites me just reading that, understanding the significance of it. Do you understand what it means for the Spirit of God to be inside of you? It means you have unlimited, untapped, supernatural power. That's what it means when the Spirit of God is inside of you. So the first thing that we see is that the Holy Spirit came. Second thing, verse number four, we're going to split this verse up. Verse number four, it says, and they were all, what's the next word? Filled. Very good. You guys are doing a little bit better now. They were all filled with what? The Holy Ghost. So the Holy Spirit came. It sounded like a mighty, rushing, violent, turbulent wind. And then there was looked like cloven tongues of fire on top of their heads. He came with sights and sounds and symbols, but then he came and he filled them up. Now listen, at Pentecost, the Christians were both filled with the Spirit, and they also experienced the baptism of the Spirit. I'm not going to go too deep into this thought this morning, but when you study the book of Acts, you'll understand that they, they countless times, they experienced many more fillings of the Spirit. Acts chapter 4, verse 8, verse 31, Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 13. Many more times the disciples were filled with the Spirit. Remember, the filling of the Spirit is a conditional thing. So countless times throughout the book of Acts, especially the disciples were filled with the Spirit, but only one time were they baptized in the Spirit. You know, the baptism of the Spirit, in a sense, is the 
indwelling of the Spirit within a believer. The Greek word baptizo has two meanings, one literal and the other figurative. The literal meaning is to submerge. We had a baptism a couple weeks ago. We got a baptism today. When you submerge, when you take someone under, to go under the water. But the figurative meaning of baptism is this, to be identified with. And that's what was happening there at Pentecost. The baptism of the Spirit, that was back in chapter 1, I think verse 4 and 5, it's the identification with Jesus Christ, to be part of his church. You see, the baptism of the Spirit is the act of God by which he identifies believers with the exalted head of Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, quickly, there are five commands related to the Holy Spirit. Let's throw these up there. First command is, or they're not really in really order, but one command is to quench not the Spirit. Another command is to grieve not the Spirit. Third, walk in the Spirit. Pray in the Spirit. And another command is this, to be filled with the Spirit. These are commands that we are given in the New Testament about the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm really, all of this is setting the stage for the application this morning. But the filling of the Spirit has to do with the power that comes upon a believer to empower us for witness and service to him. Acts, or Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 talks about being filled with the Spirit. Talking about the importance of using and relying on God's power. And to me, one of the, I guess, most awesome things, one of the coolest things when you study this out, verse number four, who, who was filled on that day? Who was filled? Was it just the 12 apostles? Every believer that was present. So again, this is the cool thing for me. It's not just the 12 apostles. Now, they did have some supernatural gifts that God had bestowed upon them, and it wasn't just, well, I'm just going to fill a select group of people. And this is what it's teaching us today, that every believer has access to the filling of the Spirit. Every believer can be filled with the Spirit. It's not just some, well, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a missionary, and I'm not an evangelist, so I cannot be filled with the Spirit. That's wrong. That's false. That's untrue. You can be filled with the Spirit. You should be filled with the Spirit. So we see, first of all, the Holy Spirit came. Second thing is the Holy Spirit filled, verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And then it leads to the third point this morning. So what happened, just read the next couple words in your Bible. What happened immediately after they were filled? Anybody? What happened immediately after the disciples, those Christians present in the upper room, what happened immediately after they were filled? They spoke in tongues. Now we're going to talk about that. I'm just glad this is not a controversial subject at all today, right? Not at all whatsoever, whatsoever. But before I go deep into this, and I'm sure some of you guys are waiting for it, let me first say, to be filled with the Spirit does not automatically equate that, hey, I'm full of the Spirit, that means I get to speak in tongues, that's not what it means. Several places in Acts, you'll see times where Christians were filled with the Spirit, but were not speaking in tongues. Now, it's easy to look at Acts chapter 2 in the first several verses and think, man, this is awesome. They spoke in tongues. I mean, this is what Acts chapter 2 is all about. 
But Acts chapter 2 is not just about speaking in tongues, church. There is a clear difference and distinction, listen, between the incidentals and the essential. Let me say that again. There is a clear difference and distinction between the incidental and the essential. And what we have in verses 5 through 11, we've seen the Holy Spirit came, the Holy Spirit filled, and now the Holy Spirit empowered or empowers. This event was the entering in of the Spirit within the believers. The signs, listen, were just a means to an end. And it is very dangerous to build theology around the means and not the end. Let me say that again. Some of you might not have gotten that. The signs of the the cloven tongue of fire and and the speaking in tongues and, and things like that were a means and not the end. You know what the end was? The Holy Spirit coming. The Holy Spirit filling. And it's very dangerous to build theology around the means and not the end. The coming of the Spirit was the important event. It was the coming of the Holy Spirit, which took those cowardly, fearful, doubting, uh, hesitant, ordinary disciples and made them courageous evangelists for Jesus Christ. It's what set the world on fire. Two quick things, if you want to write this down, it's going to be up here, I think, on the screen, or maybe not. But two quick things about speaking in tongues. First of all, they were speaking in known languages. I don't think we have it. I forgot to put that one up there. They were speaking in known languages. What I mean is they were not speaking some heavenly dialect that no one else could understand. Did you get that? They were speaking known languages. It's not like they started speaking, whatever, and nobody understood what they were saying. The people that were there, uh, let's look at verse number five. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews. So Jews were there at Jerusalem for this feast. Devout men out of every nation under heaven. So every nation of Jews were gathered together. So think about this. I mean, put it in perspective. You've got, let's, let's say every nation of North America. You know, you've got people from Canada, uh, who some people from Canada speak English, some people from Canada speak French. You've got people from Canada, you've got people from America. Some people from America speak, who knows what they speak? We don't even know. Um, then you got people from Mexico and other places, you know. So there's a lot of different languages, a lot of different tongues. You think about Europe. There's a lot of different languages within Europe, right? Within Africa, within different continents. So all of these people were gathered together, every nation under heaven at this point, gathered together here in Jerusalem for this day of Pentecost. Now, the Greek word translated tongues, and it's very important to understand the original language, is dialecto, which is where we get our word dialect from. See, today in Jerusalem, there were Jews from every nation under, under, under heaven. And the speaking of tongues does not refer to some mystical heavenly language. Every person there heard the disciples speaking in his or her own language. That's important. So if you were there and all you spoke was Mandarin... They heard that. If you were there, you spoke French. You heard that. You were there. You spoke Babylonian or uh, whatever other language there is. And there's a lot of other languages. Whatever language there, you heard the gospel in your language. So tongues, they they were speaking in known languages. Second thing quickly, 
Tongues were a sign to unbelievers. And that's very important. Tongues were a sign to unbelievers. This was not for other Christians. When you study your Bible properly, you discover this. 1 Corinthians 14 even testifies this, where Paul says, Wherefore, tongues are for a sign. Listen to what he says. Not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. So when they were speaking in tongues here at the day of Pentecost, they were speaking in known languages. And tongues were for a sign to unbelievers. And whenever you see it mentioned in Acts, unbelievers, those that did not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, were present. It wasn't for Christians. It wasn't for a show. You got that? I'm not going to go so deep into this, but it wasn't for a show. That's not what it was for. It was to promote the gospel. And here's where it gets truly amazing to me. As you continue reading, look at verse number six. Now, when this was noised abroad, basically it's, it's spreading. The multitude came together and were confounded. They were perplexed because that every man heard them speak in his own language. It was just astounding. How can this be? How can this be that I'm hearing someone else speak in my native tongue of Italian or French or whatever it is? How can this be? Verse number seven, and they were all amazed and marveled, <laughs> saying one to another, behold, are not all of these which speak Galileans? Now, this wasn't necessarily a compliment. Galileans were simple folk. <laughs> um, it'd be like, you know, someone from the backwoods of, I don't know, Louisiana or Alabama, you know, somewhere from the backwoods, a, a true redneck that really, sorry, sorry for that, Alan, he's from Louisiana. <laughs> Wasn't going off on him, but <laughs> he understands what I'm saying here. It'd be like someone from the backwoods of somewhere like that that doesn't have a lot of education, and all of a sudden, let's say, you know, Mandarin Chinese, which is a difficult language, all of a sudden, they're speaking fluent Mandarin Chinese. And it'd be like, you know, how many watch Duck Dynasty? Like Uncle Sai, like just like fluently, you know, spouting out these other languages. They're like, wait, what just happened? Like, you're Galilean. You, you're simple. You don't know all this other languages. It, that... That's what confounded and amazed and perplexed them all so much. How can, verse number eight, how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? And I'm going to try to say these verses, but verse number nine, uh, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and dwellers in Mesopotamia and, and in Judea and, and uh, Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and uh, Pamphylia and, and Egypt and, and in parts of Libya about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, all together. Now, some have called Pentecost a reversal of what happened at Babel. Or Babel. You see, at Babel, God's judgment was upon the people. Because at the Tower of Babel, if you remember, they were trying to build a tower into the heavens, and that's where God confounded the languages. That's when God spread out the languages around the world. People there at Babel were confounded because all of a sudden they're talking and then all of a sudden they're talking and they can't understand each other. It'd be like right now, God comes down, confounds the languages. The person sitting next to you is sitting in, or saying a language that you have no clue what they're saying. You can't, you can't comprehend it. You can't understand it. 
Babel scattered the people. But God's blessings at Pentecost, listen, united the people. They united the believers through the Spirit. At Babel, the people were unable to understand each other. But at Pentecost, men heard God's praises and understood what was said. The Tower of Babel was a scheme designed to praise men and to make man a name for himself. But Pentecost brought praise to God. The building of Babel was an act of rebellion, but Pentecost was a ministry of humble submission to God. What a contrast. It's not a complete reversal of Babel, though, because God didn't give everyone the same language. Instead, unique languages were preserved as everyone heard the same message, and that's pretty awesome. The language that you spoke was preserved, and you were able to hear the message in your own language. It'd be like putting on headphones and in the UN, you know, you're, you're hearing what they're saying in your own language. Someone's interpreting it. And this is important. We're almost done. Here's what this teaches us. It teaches us that God is glorified in Christ-exalting unity amidst blessed diversity. Think of the diversity that is there that day. Nations of every tongue, of every kindred under heaven, as it says in verse number five, all gathered together and God unified them through the spirit. And what this teaches me is that we do not serve or worship a tribal deity. Which means God is not just for select groups of people, is he? The gospel is not just for the Jews. And if you're not a Jew, you should be thankful for that. The gospel is for all people, for all nations, for all kindred, for all tongues. And the first time, this is truly awesome, the first time the gospel was preached after Jesus left, after Jesus ascended, it was preached in all languages simultaneously. How awesome is that? To me, that's pretty awesome. Some of you are like, man, that's pretty cool. Some of you are like, "Eh, whatever, I don't really care. But it's pretty awesome. It's pretty cool. First time Jesus left and ascended into heaven, when he leaves this earth the first time, the gospel is preached. All languages under heaven heard the gospel simultaneously. Do you realize the significance of that? Tim Keller, on this passage, he quoted from uh, Layman Sanaa, who was an African professor at Yale University. Sanaa said, I want you to listen to this. Very interesting. He said that the Muslims, and Sanaa used to be a Muslim, will quickly tell you that the Quran cannot be translated. English? He said that's just a paraphrase. The actual words of God are in Arabic. As for or as far as Muslims are concerned, God speaks only Arabic. If you want to hear God's word, you need to learn Arabic. And when Islam comes in, it slowly replaces the culture with its own Arabic culture. But when the gospel was preached, however, the first time it was preached, it was preached in all languages languages at once, showing that no culture is the right culture. And thus, and this is good, when the gospel goes into a place, listen, it does not erase culture. You know what it does? It redeems the culture. And there are some today that struggle with this. 
There are some American missionaries that go into a country, a different culture, and try to Americanize it. That is wrong. You shouldn't do that. There are even people within the states that maybe one area that they grew up in, they're coming and bringing something to another area, another culture, and they're trying to make this culture what that culture used to be. You can't do that. You shouldn't do that. So the gospel doesn't erase the culture. It simply redeems culture. And Sanaa went on to say, listen, he said, no other religion can truly do that. Other religions tend to erase that culture. And he said, as a professor at Yale University, I see it's not just other religions that do that. Secularism does it too. For all of their talk of diversity, Harvard and Yale are interested in producing only different colored European liberals. <laughs> he said, diversity, dress and food. But as far as worldview, you're expected to think and approach the world just like they tell you to. For example, he said the average African sees a very spiritual side to the world. But when the African goes to Harvard, he is told that the world has no spirits, no miracles. Harvard guts their Africanness. Christianity helps Africans become renewed Africans, Sana said, not remade Europeans. Christianity accepts the reality of the spirit world, but removes the tendency in African culture towards superstition and violence because it shows Christ as the victor over all evil spirits through love and service, not violence and manipulation. And that's what Pentecost meant, that no culture is the right one. And when the gospel goes in, it doesn't erase it, but it redeems. And I want to read this as I come to a conclusion this morning one of my commentaries, and it goes along the lines of that professor at Yale. The commentary wrote, he said, a missionary friend was trying to translate the Bible into Kurdish. His unbelieving Kurdish friend, who was helping him translate the book of Acts, marveled that the nations were present on the day which God formed this new community. The Kurdish man dropped his pencil after reading about the Medes and asked, do you know that my people were there? And then because the Kurds traced their history back to the Medes, this man reconsidered his idea of Christianity. For him, Acts chapter 2 was proof that the gospel is for the world. What happened that day serves as hard evidence that we do not serve a tribal deity. Instead, as followers of Jesus... Jesus offers salvation to all nations since our Savior died to win all people from every nation. And Pentecost, as he said, is just a little foretaste of the global multitude that will one day unite in praise to the Lamb that we see in Revelation chapter 7, verse number 9. See, the message today is not about learning to speak in different languages or different tongues. The message today comes down to this. It's about allowing the power of the Holy Spirit to flow through you and turn you from an ordinary individual to an extraordinary individual that has been set afire. It's our job, church, to take the message of the gospel to a lost and dying world. And that's what we need today. We need a bunch of unexceptional people. I'm not trying to be mean, but that's what we have. <laughs> we have a bunch of unexceptional people that can do exceptional things through the power of the Holy Spirit.
Think of that uh, song. I think it's that Jeremy Camp song, the, the same power. The same power that rose Jesus from the grave. The same power that commands the dead to wake lives in us. The same power that Jesus has, we have as well. Did you get that? And God has never overpromised and never underdelivered. His word always proves true. The significance of Acts chapter 2 is not that the Spirit came and went, but the Spirit came and stayed. Pentecost was the installation of God's new source of blessing and power for the benefit of his people. The installation happens once at the moment of salvation, but the significant is ongoing. It's not about speaking in tongues. You know, there are some that, and again, I'm trying not to go deep into this, but I'm not, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not even again saying that God might use you to speak to someone else, to share the gospel with them, if they don't understand your language. I believe the Holy Spirit can still work that way today. I do. Because if you really want to share the message of Jesus Christ, and you pray and ask God to, to fill you up, I'm not saying you're just going to be blubbering something, but you might be speaking in English, and they just hear it in Spanish or whatever it is. I believe the Holy Spirit can do that. That's the power that the Holy Spirit has. That's the power that we need. And as I've said the first three weeks, it is time for us to not go back to Pentecost and try to recreate the events that happened, but it's time for us to come alive with the empowering of the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit, as we close this key truth, The Holy Spirit gave ordinary disciples the power to do extraordinary things. And God uses ordinary people for extraordinary ends when we allow the Holy Spirit to empower us. You see, the early disciples, the early followers, what we see in these first 11 verses thus far, and we're going to continue the narrative next week. Stay tuned. It gets even better. What we see is that the Holy Spirit empowered them for gospel service. Uh, I can't really serve. Maybe it's time that you started praying for the Holy Spirit to fill you up with him and not yourself. Because the more full you are of yourself, the less you're going to do for Christ. That's the reality. The more full you are of the Holy Spirit, the more you're going to do for him. And the mission is not your own mission. The mission is his mission. To go and advance the gospel. To preach the gospel. To share the gospel. To make disciples. And that's what I want from our church. The Holy Spirit, not would come down in a, a mighty rushing wind, a torrent, but that he would empower us, that he would fill us up with a group of people that are united together in prayer and realizing that, hey, we can't do anything apart from God's leading. We can't do anything apart from the Holy Spirit moving us and guiding us, directing us forward. It's time that we come alive and it's time that we allow the Holy Spirit to truly ignite us.